Welcome to the Geopolitics and Empire podcast once again. Before we get to our guest, let me just remind listeners to subscribe to all our social media and share our material. Please rate and review our podcast on iTunes and elsewhere. And finally, leave us a donation or tip if you're so inclined via Bitcoin, PayPal, or Patreon to keep us going. Today, we're speaking with Edward Lozansky, who is the founder of the American University in Moscow and the World Russia Forum. He is also a foreign member of the Russian Academy of Social Sciences and professor of world politics at Moscow State and National Research Nuclear Universities. We'll be discussing Ukraine and U.S.-Russia relations. And thank you for joining Geopolitics and Empire, Mr. Lozansky. My pleasure. Now, I thought we could start with your latest piece that you wrote for the Washington Times, questioning whether Ukraine is vital to U.S. security. I, I simply cannot understand... Um, Anyone, you know, I'm being frank and blunt here. Um, I can't under I can't understand uh, anyone, especially the the hardliners in the West or the North Atlantic, who continue to promote this narrative that Russia invaded Ukraine. When I believe the evidence is ample that it was a U.S. coup, which, as you said in your article, uh, wouldn't correspond to Western or, in broader terms, Judeo-Christian uh, values. And so, you know, this is not me being pro-Putin. It's being in favor of the objective truth, whether you know, at the time it favors the U.S. or at the time it favors uh, the Russian position. So, you know, we had the Ukrainian orange U.S. color revolution in 2004, followed by the sequel in 2014. And, you know, I would argue perhaps that Ukraine is not vital to U.S. security from a defense posture. But if the U.S. is preparing for an offensive on Russia, then Ukraine perhaps is vital for U.S. Uh, US uh, aggression. So can you tell us a bit, you know, what's happening in, in Ukraine is it vital or not to U.S. security in your mind? Okay, I'll try to be short because the subject is really, you can expand it and talk volumes. So I'll try to be short. Also, I want to tell uh, the viewers that I was born in Ukraine. Uh, I speak fluent Ukrainian. Uh, I studied in Ukrainian school. Uh, and um, then later I moved to Moscow to study nuclear physics. But I feel... No, very strongly for Ukraine. A lot of my relatives and friends, uh, my high school mates, still live in Kiev. And actually, some in the past, I was going to Kiev quite often to for a union. So um, for me, it's not abstract. It's not just politics. It's just really my life. So um, uh, I okay, want to start with uh, uh, the uh, point that I was probably one of the first people to recognize independence of Ukraine when it was still part of the Soviet Union. Of course, it may sound a little strange, but this is what happened. When I was kicked out from uh, Soviet Union for my kind of anti-Soviet, anti-communist uh, you know, activities, um, I came to the United States and um, I was asked at the time, uh, what country you were born? It's the place of your birth. And uh, at that time, uh, Ukraine was still part of the Soviet Union. But nevertheless, I said I was born in Ukraine. <laughs> I felt that Ukraine, free from communism, could really prosper because it's a, it's a rich country. Uh, it has great potential, um, very educated people. Uh, Ukraine was one of the most, most strongest and uh, economically developed um, uh, republics of the Soviet Union. But the only thing is that when I said in the independence of Ukraine, I didn't mean it that there has to be enemy of Russia, because this would be something counterproductive. 
yes, Ukraine uh, and all other 15 republics when Soviet Union collapsed, I really thought it's a good idea because um, when those republics will free, they can you know, move independently. But at the same time, <clears throat> uh, this didn't mean they have to bring uh, break those ties which would develop 70 years of existence. So strong economic ties, first of all, of course, but not cultural. With Ukraine, it's even more than that. It's family, uh, religion. So uh, I, uh, when I was dreaming of uh, Ukraine liberation from Soviet Union, I had in mind that Ukraine will maintain uh, all those ties, but still be an independent state. But what happened in um, uh, 1991, uh, that the West, and of course the United States first, they wanted to um, transform Ukraine in anti-Russia state. And this is something that I strongly disagree. Um, I think one of the uh, people who uh, advocated this policy was Bignu Dzerzhinsky, because Bignu Dzerzhinsky, he's of Polish origin, and you know, the relations between Poland and Russia historically are not, not very good. So Dzerzhinsky uh, said a very famous statement that if Russia uh, is with Ukraine, then it's empire. If you break uh, Ukraine from Russia, then uh, Russia becomes just regional uh, power which with no relevance on the international arena. So for, for Dzerzhinsky, this was geopolitics. For me, it was uh, free Ukraine, it's independent states, prosperous, and still maintaining uh, the friendly economic, family, no historical relations with Russia. For Bzezinski, uh and not only Bzezinski was maybe, let's say, maybe like a uh, no, strong voice, um, uh, but not only one. For he was followed by uh, many members of um, uh, American foreign policy elite who wanted to transform Ukraine into anti-Russia or directly into Russian enemy to weaken Russia geopolitically. And I was strongly against that. So this is, uh, sorry for this long introduction, but this is something shows my personal position that um, um, US policy toward Ukraine is really damaging, first of all, to Russia, of course, it was intentioned, it's, but even more damaging to Ukraine itself. And speaking that Ukraine is somehow vital to US security, uh, you can only say it if you think that um, you, you weaken Russia, and through that, uh, you just somehow U.S. will gain geopolitical influence. But in the meantime, uh, Ukraine uh, is suffering, Russia is suffering, two Christian nations are suffering. That's why I mentioned about you know, so Judeo-Christian values, because if you uh, now put two Christian countries fighting each other, how does it correspond to the ethics? And uh, Judeo-Christian values, for me, this is something that is, is strange to say the least, but it's actually not true. And just to, to add on to that thought, how do, how do most other Ukrainians feel? Uh, are, are they pulled more to the West? Uh, I mean, do they feel like you? How, how do other Ukrainians feel? The problem is that Ukraine is a special state because uh, it was formed, and I have a special also article in Washington Times, I can send you the link and maybe, because uh, this history of Ukraine, if someone really has time to study, 
they, it's um, a combination uh, of many huge pieces of land which were attached to small uh, portion, uh, which was uh, in 1642. Ukraine was a very tiny part uh, of what is called Ukraine now. Uh, so from 1642 uh, to um, 1917, uh, when this was Bolshevik Revolution, there were Russian czars who were attaching huge pieces of Russian land to Ukraine. Um, um, and this was mainly from the north. Then uh, in 1917, after Bolshevik coup, Lenin and Trotsky, they attached huge pieces of Ukraine from south and east. And then um, in 1939, Joseph Stalin attached um, what it's called Western Ukraine, took it from Poland and attached it to uh, Ukraine from, from the west. And finally, in 1954, Khrushchev, the Soviet dictator, um, he simply attached uh, this Crimean Peninsula to Ukraine. It was, you know, 90% uh, Russian speaking and actually ethnic Russians. So you see, it's a very uh, strange state. It's hardly, I don't know, is any other example that uh, we can uh, say that exists like that. So when you say how Ukrainians feel, depends what part of land you're talking about. So uh, people, uh, if you, mostly anti-Russian portion of um, Ukraine is from the West. And one can explain because they were never part of Russia and um, Joseph Stalin simply uh, in, in the deal with Hitler, he attached those lands. So you can you know, understand the feelings but what now, what's going on is that those people are be actually becoming like um, most active uh, on political scene. And although in terms of votes, uh, it's minority, they're small, but they are very active. And some of them were Nazi collaborators during the World War II, when Hitler invaded um, USSR. Um, and um, they felt that they better be on the side with Hitler because before that, Stalin took them over, you see? So that's why it, it, it can be justified to some extent that uh, they hated uh, no, Russia because they felt that uh, Russia occupied them first. And they were trying to see maybe Hitler can help them uh, to, to be liberated from, from the Soviet Union. Um, and they collaborated with, with Hitler. Um, and they did many horrible things and they killed you know, of course, Jews and Poles and, and, and Russians, uh, and uh, actually the strong uh, anti, um, uh, um, uh, this area of Ukraine is called Galicia, uh, and there's a strong resentment from Poles, because Poles, they hate Russia as well, but they also hate those Galicians. So it's very complicated, of course, but uh, depends where you live. So in general, uh, majority, um, this, this recent elections showed that overwhelming majority, first of all, want peace. And that's why they elected um, this guy Zelensky. It's very strange because Ukraine has pretty you know, anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic uh, kind of uh, uh, mood, usually, uh, I would say, majority. But still, they elected Jewish uh, president. Uh, it, it shows that they hated 
this um, former um, President Poroshenko so much, and they wanted peace. So they even decided to elect a Jewish president because he was giving a hope that um, he can bring peace to this unfortunate land. Uh, unfortunately, we see what's going on now. It's not, he's not delivering, uh, but maybe there's still some hope that maybe now on, on um, Monday, um, December 9, in Paris, maybe some kind of a compromise uh, can be found, although I, frankly, I doubt very much because already the opposition to Zelensky, they already saying that there will be another coup if he gives in, if he gets some compromise uh, with, with Russia, then uh, he will be simply overthrown as well. So, and, and mostly it comes from the West of Ukraine because they're most passionate and um, they, um, being a minority, they still run the streets and they can do you know, many bad things. Uh, so Zelensky is in a very weak uh, situation. And now there's somebody else who has also become uh, embroiled uh, with Ukraine Gate, that being President Trump, and most which you've written about in your article. And most recently, the, um, I've noticed the constitutional lawyer Jonathan Turley, who recently testified that uh, essentially the Democratic Party's uh, attempt to impeach President Trump is based largely on sentiment and feelings of the Democrats, and really lacks any credible uh, evidence of wrongdoing by. Trump and you know I'm going to say I I I didn't vote in the previous election so I did not vote for Trump so I'm no you know in, part, in any particular side but I, I remember I recall also a few years ago myself having a discussion at a university with a few professors and students all of which shared the ideology of the Democratic Party and I was kind of shocked where they openly stated that they supported the idea of an unconstitutional and forceful removal of President Trump just because they didn't like him. And so in your latest article, you wrote, quote, as someone who grew up in the Soviet Union, I tend to agree that the Trump impeachment inquiry looks like a Soviet-style event. When I listen to Adam Schiff and company, they indeed remind me of Soviet apparatchiks who knew they were telling lies, contemptuous of the fact that their hearers didn't believe a single word they said. These were the uh, unspoken rules everyone had to accept or else. But for God's sake, we are in America, aren't we? End quote. So how do you see these charges, uh, these new charges of Ukraine gates? Uh, we've previously had the Russia gate. Now we have Ukraine gate and this Trump impeachment spectacle and the current domestic politics in the U.S. Well, uh, it's very unfortunate because for me, it's like the old circles. <laughs> I left uh, Soviet Union because I didn't like what was going on there and uh, the system, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, my my dream was uh, America as land of freedom and democracy and everything that I was in my many of my friends you know, wanted to live uh, in the country which shares um, those ideas. But right now, what I see, I see a kind of a repeat uh, in many things which uh, you know I despised uh, in, in the Soviet Union. I see now happening in the United States. It's, it's, it's very unfortunate. But uh, media, American media, mainstream media, uh, it's Soviet media 2.0. Um, and, uh, you know, Washington Post, I used to call it like, not, not, by the, not just myself, 
Pravda, on the Potomac. Pravda, uh, the main newspaper of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. And now Washington Post is Pravda on the Potomac, and New York Times, it's Pravda on Hudson. But I have to say that uh, sometimes what I read in Washington Post and New York Times, this is maybe even worse than what Pravda was doing. So it's just, it's not, a, it's Pravda, you know, in the second or third degree. Uh, and this is, uh, for me, who lived uh, in the Soviet Union and left it for, for freedom, uh, and I see that many, many things are now resembling USSR. And not just only me uh, saying this, uh, Congressman Steve Scalise, uh, he said it, and um, in this article, uh, I think Washington Times mm, on the web page, uh, uh, they posted Steve Scalise with a poster of Soviet Union, Hammer and Sickle, <laughs> and saying that, so it's not just uh, you know, my radical view, but it's uh, American uh, congressman who is saying things like that. It is very unfortunate. Uh, and uh, right now, by the way, I am uh, writing article uh, for the next, uh, I'm a regular columnist for Washington Times, uh, with some ideas uh, how we can maybe repair the situation. Maybe if we have some time, you'll be the first um, uh, to uh, hear this, my, some of my Christmas <laughs> wishes. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, yeah, I write them in the form of kind of a, you know, like, again, it's not probably not realistic, but at least it's Christmas wish. And um, I wrote uh, it uh, with some kind of sense of humor because I know that all my proposals uh, probably will not be fulfilled except maybe one. But um, uh, going back to Judeo-Christian values, um, and now it looks this year, it's very interesting because um, a Jewish holiday Hanukkah and um, Christian uh, holiday Christmas happens practically at the same time. So I thought this may be some God's divine <laughs> message. And, I, and since in American politics, uh, no, uh, Jewish, uh, uh, some call it lobby, some no Jewish um, um, politicians in the Congress, uh, in the media, play a very important role. I thought that maybe this um, joint Judeo-Christian message can help the you know, uh, United States uh, and Russia, because this is something that the main theme is that how we can repair these relations because it's dangerous. It's not just um, some kind of a scholarly difference. You're talking about new, two nuclear superpowers uh, who can simply, you know, if this military conflict, then the, the whole civilization, uh, it will be end uh, of uh, it uh, as we know it. So um, I have almost in all my articles, I'm trying to find some kind of a message that can stop this madness. Uh, and uh, what you should start with is somehow we build trust. Because at this point, America doesn't trust Russia because America claims Russians meddled in the elections. And, and, and Russia doesn't trust America because America and NATO, they surround Russia with uh, all those bases and all that. So... Uh, this is this is extremely dangerous. Uh, so I came up with like three three points. First, my message is to Mr. Putin, and I <clears throat> uh, appeal to Mr. Putin: uh, just get take a microphone and make a public statement that Russia will not interfere in American elections. 
uh, not in 2020, not in the future. And he makes this pledge that <laughs> Russia will not interfere in the American election. Because right now, uh, during those impeachment discussions, there's a repeat that Russia, they already know. Pelosi already knows, and not only Pelosi, by the way, it's the only thing that Republicans and Democrats agree that Russia meddled in previous elections, and Russia is already meddling. Elections haven't started yet, but Russia already meddling in those elections. So please, Mr. Putin, just say that you will not uh, meddle in American elections. This is the first thing. And um, in, in, in the past, Russians were saying that, okay, we'll do that if America also pledges not to interfere in our elections. And America interferes uh, in many elections, including Russian. And actually, I was witness in 96 how America was interfering in Russian elections. But uh, to make story short, I said, don't ask Americans to say the same. Just do it on your own. This is the first thing. You make first move in the chess. It's a ge geopolitics, it's a chess. <laughs> so you make a first move. But then next move is for Mr. Trump. And Mr. Trump, we know that when he was campaigning, he um, um, was talking that NATO is kind of obsolete. And of course, he was attacked for that, and then, then he had to change his tune, and uh, that he's in favor of NATO, the only thing he wants Europeans to pay more. Um, but now, uh, un uh, unexpectedly, uh, Macron, French president, he said that NATO is actually the major problem of what's going on. And actually, NATO is brain dead, uh, and uh, maybe we have to, uh, because he we didn't see, France doesn't see that Russia is going to attack uh, you know, uh, this country. Uh, and actually, uh, most of the NATO members don't believe that Russia is going to attack them. The only countries that claim it are Baltics, uh, Poles, uh, and uh, probably that's it. Um, but um, uh, it's, it's, they're using this Baltics and Poles simply to you know, get some relevance and maybe get some money. Uh, and, and, and they're strongly anti-Russian. So this is what they're trying to uh, you know, uh, use uh, this language. So Trump, uh, Macron said that uh, uh, NATO, uh, the threat to Europe is terrorism. Uh, and uh, uh, no, I, I agree with that. Actually, I wrote about this uh, uh, in the past, and actually with Jim Jatras, we have an uh, article in the uh, Washington Times. Uh, actually, it's the only newspaper which is publishing different opinion uh, from Pravda on the Potomac <laughs> and, and, you know, and Pravda on the Hudson and, and elsewhere. Uh, so um, the idea is to change uh, NATO from uh, actually started with changing name from NATO to uh, YATO, I mean IATO. So instead of North Atlantic Treaty Organization, it will be International Anti-Terrorist Organization. So it only change one letter, first letter. Uh, instead of N, uh, then you just change, put I, uh, and make it International Anti-Terrorist Organization. And we wrote, uh, uh, and Jim and I, but now Macron, so we have a strong <laughs> kind of a, you know, comrade in arms for that. And in this case, if you change it 
not just with names, of course, but also with, uh, with deeds, then uh, Ukraine can join, uh, Russia can join, uh, you know, any country, uh, Georgia, uh, you know, Zimbabwe, any, any country which wants to fight terrorism, they can join this organization, and this really becoming a peacekeeping you know, uh, group. Uh, and, um, and then everyone is happy. It's, but this is for Trump to do. So, um, you know, and he, he said it at the beginning, that this is what he feels. He said that I'm not president of the whole uh, universe. Uh, I'm just president of America first. No, I'm only with, <laughs> want to take care of America. Uh, but establishment, American establishment, foreign policy establishment, they force him uh, to change his tune. So this is like a second wish. And um, a third wish dealing with my home country, Ukraine, um, and um, uh, that uh, to have a peace in uh, Ukraine, in this area, Donbass, which rebelled after this coup in 2014. Uh, people in Donbass, they... Um, Say that we want, we agree to be, we'll go back to Ukraine. So we not, don't want to separate Ukraine, but only two conditions, only two, that we have autonomous, autonomous status, like a special status, um, like, um, look like a federation. Federation, like what we enjoy in the United States and in Canada. The reason I mentioned Canada, because second thing, what those people want, they want two state languages, because they're all Russian, well, most of them, of course, Russians, they want to speak their native language. And in Canada, uh, there are many, many millions of Ukrainians who uh, escaped uh, you know, during those years. And Ukraine, uh, for Canada, is federation and has two state languages, English and French. So my question is, why Ukrainians who live in, um, in Canada, uh, why they accept this federation status and two state languages? Why Ukrainians in, in, in Donbass and actually maybe some other uh, parts of Ukraine cannot be, are they like second rate or third rate people? Uh, so it's, so if, if uh, Zelensky, um, and he now has majority in his new parliament, would accept that, that okay, you have special status and we'll have two state languages. That's it. It's, it's peace. So three people have to make um, no pledge, Putin not to interfere American elections, Trump to change NATO, and Zelensky to agree with um, those uh, separatist uh, republics' demands. And then we'll have peace on earth, and uh, then <laughs> all those Judeo-Christian values you know, will help us uh, to survive. Um, uh, then, uh, no, I end article saying that um, uh, I don't think that any of those wishes, except maybe for Putin, it's very easy. Uh, maybe Putin will listen to me. I don't know. But then it's mainly like a story uh, for Christmas and Hanukkah. And uh, no, so at least people will enjoy it because sometimes we know that miracles do happen uh, during the Christmas time. Hopefully we move in that direction. And speaking of two state languages, I mean, he I'm here in Kazakhstan and Everyone speaks Russian and, and, and Kazakh pretty much. So, I mean, there's other parts of the world uh, where this functions. And I wanted to get briefly your take on NATO. I know you, you'd like to rename it, uh, as you said, I-A-T-O. But uh, until that happens, we have to deal with NATO as it is. And recently they had their 
meeting a summit for the 70th anniversary, I believe, in London. And the Secretary General, Jens Stoltenberg, stated that Ukraine and Georgia will become members of NATO. And beyond that, they're working to add North Macedonia and Bosnia. Uh, furthermore, Turkey's Erdogan has acquiesced to NATO deployments uh, in Poland and the Baltics. And Sergei Lavrov recently stated that NATO wants to dominate the Euro-Atlantic and the Middle East, implying a renewed search uh, into Syria and Iraq, uh, as well as they've brought up for the first time the rise of China, uh, where NATO is kind of declaring China a threat for the first time ever, something that they have to deal with. So, you know, uh, first the issue of the expansion now further and are they inventing uh, a new boogeyman of china to justify their own existence or is fear of china warranted so uh briefly just what's your take on this new round of nato expansion well uh it's in short it's a direct way to world war three because um putin and doesn't any, any leader after putin will not allow ukraine and georgia join NATO. This is a red line which Russia will not um, allow to cross. Uh, so uh, all people who say that, uh, well, they, they're pushing the world toward World War III. And this is something that we want to avoid. And um, uh, you know, talk of World War III is now not just uh, some uh, made by people who uh, not in um, mainstream politics, no, like scholars you know, like me. Uh, Senator Nunn, a very uh, respected, uh, who was chairman of uh, you know, Armed Services Committee, and uh, he's basically a Democrat. He wrote article, not just one, several, that we are now sleepwalking into nuclear disaster. And he actually said that we need dialogue with Russia. Um, and actually, this call was, uh, it was joined then by former Secretary of Defense Perry and even uh, Secretary of Energy um, uh, under Bush administration. Um, and more and more people uh, agree. Even John Huntsman, former U.S. ambassador to Moscow, uh, who during his term, uh, he was saying some really terrible things. He said that diplomacy it's 100,000 ton of uh, U.S. missile carriers. No, diplomats are not supposed to you know, use missile carriers in, in their conversations. It's up to Pentagon. Um, but then when he left his position, he also called for dialogue. So maybe you know, something happened to his, uh, some ideas came. To, maybe he read Sam uh, Nan article uh, and, uh, and agreed that we have to do that. Um, so, um, this is uh, ex NATO expansion. Uh, it's uh, not just sleepwalking, it, it's just really walking into a nuclear catastrophe. Uh, and, uh, well, it's, it's unfortunate, it's a sad story, um, but um, also what it does is that since they also put China into that, it's more and more like, kind of a reason for China and Russia to move closer, uh, to form some kind of a, uh, alliance. It's already economic alliance. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if uh, they will form military alliance, but if uh, uh, all this um, <clears throat> NATO um, uh, divisions and all that 
they consider Russia and China as major threats. Uh, those two countries have no option but to merge some kind of alliance to resist this uh, encirclement. You know, that was one of my other questions. Uh, Eurasia, you know, Halford McKinder, who we talk about often uh, or cite uh, on this program, it was uh, the Anglo-American and, and Halford McKinder's kind of nightmare that Eurasia comes together. And that's what, what's happening. As you mentioned, the, the, the dynamics of the Eurasian uh, alliance of China uh, and Russia between the different uh, economic uh, arrangements uh, as well as the increasing military security uh, arrangements. You've got the Belt and Road, the Eurasian Economic Union, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Uh, in fact, it was interesting recently to hear about a joint China-Russia draft plan, I believe, uh, to deal with the Korean uh, Peninsula, which kind of demonstrates uh, a power shift now to the east. Do you feel that Eurasia coming together is uh, earth-shattering sh earth in terms of international relations uh, and the power is, is shifting uh, east? Yes, yes it's, uh, of course, this is what's happening. That's why I think Macron, uh, probably one of the first of the Western leaders, who understand that. And uh, he feels that um, uh, what this brain-dead NATO is doing, um, and of course foreign policy establishment, uh, mainly United States, because U.S. is the leader, and, uh, and, and uh, NATO does what Washington uh, wants. So Mac Macron feels that, and he, he sees danger. Uh, and that's why he feels that... Um, um, he didn't call this uh, exactly what I said, IATO, but he, you know, actually the logic, his logic was exactly on that. He said that our enemy is international terrorism. Um, actually, in one of uh, my columns in Washington Times, I suggested that maybe we should think about smaller, uh, since uh, Security Council UN is not very effective. Uh, and when the United States decided to invade Iraq, uh, I didn't ask permission from the Security Council because they knew that it would be vetoed, by the way, not only by Russia, but at that time, France was against it, and France also a permanent member of the uh, Security Council. Germany, by the way, uh, was also against uh, that. Uh, so uh, George Bush just simply invaded Iraq uh, uh, without UN Security Council. It shows that UN Security Council, uh, you know, it's something that um, is not uh, fulfilling its, its duty. Uh, so um, I came up with the idea uh, to maybe have a smaller version of um, Security Council, and this will have the United States, uh, will have uh, Russia, China, India, and, uh, well, it would be good if we have EU, but EU is a mess now. Uh, and uh, with Brexit, uh, you know, it's what's going on. So then, and then Macron came, and since uh, France is a nuclear uh, power, the only nuclear power uh, after Brexit, uh, then it's the only nuclear power in Europe, then it will be like G5. Uh, so in this G5 can really... Uh, make sure that it manages security issues, uh, and then uh, maybe then the world will be safer. So I keep coming with all those <laughs> crazy ideas, um, but um, at least uh, I have a voice uh, in Washington and Moscow because I'm columnist for 
two major newspapers, Washington Times and Izvestia. So at least my messages go to Russia and go to, uh, no, no, to Washington. <laughs> so at least some people read it. I don't know what effect it has, but at least gives me some satisfaction that I'm not just sitting and waiting for nuclear bomb you know, hitting um, <laughs> both countries. Actually, uh, my latest book, which um, I just published, uh, is how uh, joint uh, forces of the United States and Russia, uh, they prevent terrorist attack, uh, which they you know, get uh, hold on a small called suitcase nuclear bomb, uh, two of them, and they wanted to explode them simultaneously in New York and Moscow. So um, CIA and Russian uh, FSB, uh, they formed a joint team and they prevented this terrorist attack. So this is uh, my latest book. It was, by the way, it was translated in Russian without even, you know, I didn't know that they wanted to do it. And, um, and now I work trying to see if I'll get some interest from the movie producers who do this movie um, no, which shows that U.S. and Russia uh, can uh, work together. And title of this book, Operation Elba. And the reason I called it Operation Elba, because um, in 1945, on uh, April 25, 1945, um, joint forces from uh, the United States and at that time Soviet Union, they were moving on Nazi Germany, and they met on the Elbe River in Germany, the city Torgau, and uh, Americans were advancing from uh, the west, Soviets from the east, and they met at this Elbe River, and this was the actually end of World War II. So that's why I called this book Operation Elbe, uh, having in mind that maybe we have to repeat the thing again, but in the fight with terrorists, uh, and uh, you know, looking for now uh, film producers. Uh, uh, Russians already uh, have um, expressed interest, but I feel that this has to be joint production. So we'll see if I'll find American producer who wants to join and we can make this movie. And is the book available uh, for purchase? Where, where oh, can yeah, we get Amazon. it? Amazon. You go to Amazon, put Edward Lozansky, uh, and it will come up immediately. I can show you this to you. We'll have to check that out. <laughs> yeah, this is a book. And, oh. mm -hmm. <laughs> but it has also Russian edition. The most prestigious Russian publishing company translated it in Russian. Uh, so it's now really, I don't know, I don't think it's a bestseller yet, but it's really moving, selling very well. <laughs> and um, I, I did want to just uh, add to, and I think it's the right thing, uh, as you say, that, that you're doing. And what I'm trying to do is, if enough of us speak out towards peace, you know, hopefully we get a critical mass and, you know, something moves in that direction. And, and I kind of do it for my children. It's like, you know, I want my children to say, you know, well, yeah, you know, I, I try to do, uh, find the truth and, and uh, fight for peace and, and try to make something happen instead of just sitting around uh, as a spectator. Uh, and I wanted to get your thoughts as well. Recently, the Belarus president, Lukashenko, and President Putin have agreed to what I suppose we can call an EU-style regional integration, where they've agreed to unify the, the single parliament, followed by common oil, gas, electricity markets, etc. And it kind of seems to be this beginning of creating like uh, an EU model in Eurasia with the Eurasian Union. 
and so far it's like Belarus and, and, and Russia. And but this was uh, Nur Sultan Nazarbayev of Kazakhstan's uh, idea, I suppose, announced in 1994. This idea of a Eurasian Union. So, I mean, what are your thoughts now of this Belarus uh, and Russia kind of coming together? And I, I'm supposing if the trend continues, Kazakhstan will join. I think it's it's a very good idea. Um, but I think from my point of view, instead of having <clears throat> two uh, and uh, maybe uh, competing structures, uh, they should you know, work together. The um, problem is that, um, going back to Ukraine, what happened is that uh, Russia wanted um, Ukraine to, of course, be part of this Eurasian Union, and EU uh, wanted Ukraine to be part of, part of EU and offered them this something called, very artificial thing called EU association. So it's not like a, it's like lady invading, right? So it's not a, a membership, but at least some kind of affiliation. Um, it's like in the university, you have professor, and then you have associate professor, which is, but in, in case of Ukraine, it was much less than associate professor. It was just something symbolic. But what was wrong in this thing is that Ukraine, could benefit a lot more if it will try to keep like, at least economic ties with both Russia and EU. And this is what I actually was writing some of my columns, is that uh, taking into account strong ties, uh, you know, religious, family, historical, cultural, uh, between Ukraine and Russia, why EU would insist of breaking its ties in exchange for ties with EU. For Ukrainians, it would be much better to maintain both connections, and that would benefit from both sides. Um, but EU goal was not to help Ukrainians. This was the last thing on their mind. They wanted to Ukraine and Russia to break their ties. Uh, and, and this is, as a result, we get what we have now, military conflict, like about 13,000 people dead, Ukraine lost Crimea, and, and this Donbass situation is kind of a very shaky. But all, I think, it started with this game of splitting. So it's like, you know, it's, it goes back to, you know, uh, Middle Ages and all that, divide and rule. Um, <laughs> I am more for kind of a union. I am for, you know, working together. So... Uh, yeah, Belarus and Russia, they you know, have to somehow survive, and they, they, that's why they created those uh, Eurasian unions. But ideally, uh, they have to repeat what I say with IATO, International Anti-Terrorist. Now they have to have economic union as well, global economic union, instead of having those blocks and, uh, uh, which uh, compete with each other. They will benefit if they work together. But at this point, it's probably not too realistic. That's why I think it would be a good idea for Russia and Belarus to do what they can. If the Kazakhstan joins, it's great. Uh, and uh, now we now see not only uh, this, we have many Eurasian groups like Shanghai cooperation organizations and this thing, uh, 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 in English, uh, I don't know, if, uh, it's a, uh, security group, which has also some former Soviet uh, republics. So we have parallel structures now, Eurasian, 
and um, um, this is um, probably not not. I don't think that it's the best scenario uh, would be simply if Eurasia and Europe and United States they are not really kind of trying to compete each other but working together for benefit of all. How do you see the Russian economies? Recently, some uh, analysts, I believe, on Wall Street have called the Russia economy bulletproof, that they can pay off their foreign debts with central bank reserves, they're cutting interest rates, their currency is stable, um, they're accumulating gold, uh, they're looking for swift alternatives. And recently, uh, President Putin has uh, said also that he believes the US dollar will collapse. So. Um, what are your thoughts on, you know, both briefly the Russian and U.S. economy going forward? Um, well, um, of course, uh, sanctions uh, and uh, the current situation it hurts Russia. <clears throat> and uh, I know I spend a lot of time in Moscow. I see that people, uh, now the income is um, not as good as it used to be. Uh, and they have to cut on their um, um, extra kind of a curricular activities. It's still not, not it's not bad, but it's definitely worse than it used to be. The sanctions they take their toll. There's no doubt about it. But uh, in general, Russian people are used to you know, tough times, and uh, um, no, I think they will somehow manage. Um, of course, if sanctions are lifted, it will be much better. I don't see at this point how this can be done un until, unless really uh, now I believe that Macron is becoming more and more like a Western leader with guts. Um, Trump, he promised many things, and um, no, uh, but so far he is not delivering on um, them, although American economy is doing well. By the way, just today, uh, new numbers came of um, jobs, and they're very good, very strong. I think it will help uh, Trump eventually to overcome this crisis with impeachment and, and win next elections. But on terms of um, uh, security and, and uh, extending hand to Russia, um, he said this is what he promised during his campaign. Um, because he understands that with U.S. security, uh, you know, getting along with Russia is, is good. He keeps saying it's a good thing, not a bad thing. Well, using Trump, Trump uh, vocabulary. Uh, but so far, he didn't deliver. Um, uh, and, but with economy, I think American economy is doing quite well and uh, uh, almost on all parameters, um, so, which is probably good. Uh, and, but... Um, uh, Russian economy probably will survive, uh, but again, sanctions, they take their toll. And looking to the future, post-Trump, uh, post-Putin, recently a Putin aide, I believe, suggested that Putin will not run for office uh, after 2024. Nobody knows. Uh, I mean, it's a fun, as they say, dinner uh, guessing game. But let's say Trump finishes his second term in 2024 together with Putin. How do you see America and Russia after that? Um, well, I think we need some fresh blood in, in, in both countries. Uh, I believe, actually, in America. 
And uh, you know, right now, America goes through a crisis, probably a major crisis in American history. And it, it's not just my words. Many people who watch what's going on in Congress, uh, they think that America never experienced anything like that. So um, uh, I think that, uh, at least I hope that America will overcome it, and maybe we'll get some new leader. Uh, at this point, I don't see, uh, looking at the stage of uh, both Republican and Democratic establishment, and uh, I don't see any uh, name uh, which can really lead the mankind to a prosperous future. Uh, and the same thing, Putin is so overwhelming that uh, anyone next to him looks small. So uh, I, I think that Putin is smart enough to not to run again in 2024. Uh, I I'm practically can guarantee it. Uh, so uh, we have, what, five years or four years uh, to see if we see any names which can uh, replace both Trump and Putin. Um, and um, probably, um, as a matter of fact, it's interesting that it will be at the same time, right? <laughs> Putin will end in 24 and, and Trump. So it's interesting. But a lot will depend on those two um, uh, countries uh, who, who will come up as, as the future leader uh, at this time, I don't see any names that I can point to that I would vote for. And uh, is there a threat, do you think, of the U.S. attempting to take control of Russia uh, again, like they did in the 1990s, through a pro-Western faction or fifth column within Russia? Is that something you fear, or Putin has taken care of that? Um, well, uh, actually, it's even written in both EU this um, Magherini, uh, one of her five principles how to deal with Russia has one principle to support Russian opposition. This is it's in the EU kind of charter. And the same thing in the US Congress. With all the sanctions, uh, all the bills, it also has special line support Russian opposition openly. Uh, I don't know if is, is it interference, uh, is it meddling? Um, well, I think so, but uh, I think Putin can handle this, um, and um, he still has uh, tremendous uh, you know, popularity ratings. Um, of course, uh, when the economy goes down, ratings also present rating goes down as well. This is uh, normal, but um, while he's in the office, I think that uh, Russia is pretty safe. Of course, I think it will be pressure. Uh, when we will come into 24, then it will be you know, additional uh, pressure and major resources will be provided by America and, and the EU to come and support this opposition. But this is, I think, closer to uh, 23, 24. Uh, and probably they'll try to repeat what they did in Ukraine because we know that billions of dollars were um, uh, available, invested in Ukraine to steer this anti-Russian uh, uh, campaign and the anti-Russian mood, uh, and they will definitely do that. 
but so Russia, probably Putin knows that, and uh, you know, they'll have to take care of their country. So you've given us your three uh, Christmas uh, wishes. Do you have any final thoughts for us as we leave uh, 2019 behind and enter the new year into 2020? So any additional or, or final thought to, to leave us with? Well, um, uh, I think I have a project uh, because I'm, I'm not a philosopher. You know, uh, I don't think I'm even a scholar. I'm more kind of activist. So and my background is physics. Um, so I try to be more practical. So <clears throat> next year, I have a project, uh, and um, <clears throat> I want <clears throat> both Americans and Russians to go to um, this place, city Torgau, Germany, and to celebrate. It will be 75th anniversary of this linkage, meeting on the Elbe River between American and Soviet military. It happened. Mm, on April 25, 1945. So next year, uh, we want to celebrate <clears throat> the 75th anniversary of this event. Uh, and I want to link Washington, Moscow, and the city Torgau. So some people will be, <clears throat> uh, you know, in this place. Uh, some people will uh, celebrate it in Moscow and some people in Washington. Because in all those three places, there's a monument. Monument, uh, Elbe River um, linkage. There's one in Washington on the bus. There actually, in Washington, there are two. One on the Arlington Cemetery, and one at the World War II Memorial uh, in downtown next to the White House, uh, Lincoln Memorial uh, or malls. Um, and then in Moscow, downtown, this famous uh, an area called um, Arbat Street. It's the most fashionable area in Moscow. There's a monument, also Elbe River. So we want people to assemble in Moscow, <clears throat> Washington, and Torgau, and you know raise their hands <laughs> and do something that we all you know should be together, in, uh, like uh, our you know, fathers, grandfathers did in uh, 1945. And we'll bring some music and festivities. Uh, and also, uh, night before in Berlin, uh, we plan to have a, like a roundtable discussion with scholars uh, from the United States and uh, Russia and some European countries to discuss, uh, to come up with ideas. What can we do do to um, you know, save mankind from this uh, nuclear holocaust, which? Uh, no people who push for NATO expansion, they push it us into you know, a nuclear catastrophe. So this is my project. So uh, my message is, uh, if you want to join, and you can join it. By the way, when they say linked, of course, if we do it like now with Zoom <laughs> US, using technology, uh, so all people will see each other. This is a great project. And yeah, for people who can't be there, I think uh, at, at least... Um, you can think uh, on that day, you know, just uh, think about the events. I know my grandfather, my uh, Croatian grandfather, had been a Nazi uh, prisoner for half a year, survived. Uh, and so I think a lot of us have uh, the connection to, to the events there. Uh, and yeah, maybe later you, you can give us more information as we get closer to the date uh, about mm -hmm. the project. 
And if you want to, uh, again, to hold up your, your, your book so uh, people can, can see it. Which describes a joint anti-terrorist operation joined by um, the United States and Russia. Uh, and they destroyed the terrorist cell, which was trying to explode two nuclear devices in New York and Moscow. Okay. And they're working mm -hmm. to make a movie based on this book. All right. I, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get it on Amazon. And you are on Twitter and you write for the Washington Times. Uh, is there anywhere else? Uh, and you have the Russia, your, um, your, organ, your website. Is there any? Izvestia. It's a major Russian newspaper. Izvestia in Russian means news. I will send you by email. I'll send you some links. Because maybe your Kazakhstan students they speak Russian, they can read both uh, English and Russian. All right. I encourage uh, listeners to be less emotional and less uh, ideological, I suppose, and more sober-minded and factual when examining such polarizing issues uh, as the ones we have been uh, talking about and discussing. And uh, once again, we thank you for your time, Mr. Edward Lozansky. Right. My pleasure.